Well, hey, we're starting a new series today called Pursuit, and we're going to dive into that in just a moment. But before we do, I thought I'd mention one thing. Uh, When we started dreaming about and talking about this series months ago, we felt that it was so important, such an important topic, that we needed to do the series church-wide. So upstairs right now in kids' ministry, uh, those of you that have kids in the K through 5 range, they're actually hearing these same messages, these same lessons over the next five weeks. If you have a student in middle school or high school uh, starting this Wednesday, they're going to be rolling out this series and they're going to be hearing all the same stuff. So I'm praying that it impacts our church in a big way. Uh, We also want to help you to continue this conversation as a family outside of Sundays. So uh, we've taken an extra step and created a conversation guide for you. It's going to be on our website, crosspointcity.com, in the blog section. You can also find it on our Facebook page week after week of this series. But we really want to encourage you to download it, uh, use it at dinner to talk to your kids uh, about what they're learning, about what you're learning, what God's doing in your lives. And if you don't have kids or, you know, you're just a single person in the room, I would say grab the guide, use it with your spouse, use it with your friends, but but just use it and, and talk about what God's doing over the course of these next several weeks, okay? All right, well, let's do this. Let's grab our Bibles, or if you have a device with a version app ready to go, uh, let's go to John chapter 1 together. John chapter 1. If you're new to Bible reading, uh, John is in the New Testament, the fourth book of the New Testament. Uh, if you can find the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're going to be in chapter 1. John chapter 1. Listen, as you're making your way there, I want to let you know that my commitment to you as your pastor is to do whatever it takes to keep us collectively focused on God's mission for his church. If you were here last Sunday, you heard me preach on that simple mission. Um, If you couldn't be here, or maybe this is your first time at Crosspoint, I would strongly encourage you to go back and uh, to watch or listen to last week's message. You can find it at crosspointcity.com. But here's what happens when you and I lose sight of the mission that God's given us. We become inwardly focused. We become self-centered and self-seeking people. Instead of treating others as we would want to be treated, we start treating others as we deserve they think to be treated. We become critical of other people. Like instead of talking with people, we spend time talking about them. And ultimately, we start to view the church as nothing more than a spiritual organization that exists to meet all of our needs instead of the beautiful bride of Christ, a movement set in motion by the God of this universe, a movement that he allows us to be a part of, all for his glory and the benefit of the world in which we live. Look, I don't want any of those things to be true of your life. I don't want them to be true of mine. And I don't want them to be true of our church. Like if we miss out on God's mission, we not only fail to honor him, but we fail to serve and love those people that he's called us to reach, serve, and love. And so I want to say it again. My commitment to you as your pastor is to do whatever it takes to keep us collectively focused on God's mission for his church. Now here at Crosspoint, we've taken that mission and we've put some of our own language to it. Here's how we say it, and we say it all the time. We exist to relentlessly pursue those far from God with the hope and love of Jesus Christ. And, and here's all that means in case you're new. Like our goal here at Crosspoint is to train followers of Jesus to be missionaries in everyday life. That's all we're working to do. 
We want to help people know, love, follow Jesus. We want to help people understand how to live like him so that they can go to broken people and dark places and make Christ known where he's needed the most. We want to send people to their neighborhoods, their ball fields, their dance studios, their workplaces. The the list goes on and on. But at the end of the day, the goal is simple. The mission is simple. We want to raise up followers of Jesus who can help other people become followers of Jesus. And in the new series that we're starting today, Pursued, we're answering the question of how. How in the world do we pull it off? Like, how can we, in a practical and effective manner, pursue people with the hope and love of Jesus in order to help them become his followers? Well, here's what we have to know today. In order to to truly understand the how, we first need to understand the who that our mission is founded upon. Right? The, The who of our mission ultimately reveals to us how the mission can be accomplished. And so today we're going to spend our time together talking about Jesus and his pursuit of us as broken, sinful people. So if you have your Bibles open to John 1, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a free one. If you don't own one before you leave, just stop at the connection desk. But you can follow along with me uh, for now. All right, Here, here we go. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, in these opening verses, John uses the title Word when referring to Jesus. Uh, In the original language of the New Testament, which was Greek, this word, Word, that you see, it's the word logos. And it simply means self-expression or speech. Now, we're going to come back to that later, and I'm going to explain what that means for you. But all I want you to know for now is this. The reason John used this title is to remind us that Jesus is the divine self-expression of God in the world. And he establishes some things to be true of Jesus in these verses to make his point. If you're taking notes, write this stuff down. Um, First, he tells us that Jesus is eternal. He's eternal. Look, in the beginning was who? Was Jesus. He was there with God the Father. Uh, Contrary to what some people believe and teach, Jesus is not a created being. He always has been and he always will be. He's an eternal being. Secondly, uh, John tells us that, that Jesus is God. So it's not that Jesus was just with God, but Jesus is God himself. Uh, in this opening verse, John is hinting at the Trinity here. And if you're new to church or, or the Bible and you're going to Trinity, James, what in the world is that? I'll do my best to explain it in about 45 seconds. I will do it no justice, by the way, but I'm at least going to touch on it, all right? As Christians, we believe in one God expressed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three persons exist simultaneous, simultaneously. They exist eternally. But they all share the same divine attributes, essence, and characteristics, making them one God. Now, some of us might be thinking, well, James, that's crazy, bro. I mean, you're saying one, you're saying three, my head hurts, it, it makes no sense. Like, which one is it? Well, the answer is both. It's three and it's one. And, and I wish I had more time to get into it, but I don't. So I would encourage you on your own time, uh, look up guys like Wayne Grudem, J.I. Packer, A.W. Tozer, Read articles written by these guys. Buy their books and read what these men have to teach concerning the Trinity and pray that God would help you to understand the depths of who he is. 
The last thing that John tells us about Jesus is this, that he is creator, that nothing in existence would exist without him. All things were made through him, including your life and mine. Now look, I want to stop and just point something out. These truths that we see concerning Jesus in John 1 set Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. While other religions might teach that that Jesus was a good man, a prophet sent by God, a powerful teacher, uh, a miracle worker, Christianity and Christianity alone claims that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is creator of the universe, that Jesus and Jesus alone is deserving of our affection and full devotion. Go to verse 14 with me. We're going to skip down. And don't worry, we'll come back to the verses in between. But verse 14, look at this. John says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In verse 14, we get a picture of what's known in the theological world as the incarnation. And I know that's probably a new word for some of us. So uh, if you're taking notes, write it down. I'm going to tell you what it means. All right, here's all it means. Incarnation simply means that God became a man. That is, John says, Jesus, who is God, a couple thousand years ago, wrapped himself in flesh, became a man, and he came to this earth to live among you and I, broken, sinful people. This is yet another truth about Jesus that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. I heard a story a few years ago uh, about a gathering of religious leaders. They were all together on a platform like the one I'm on. There was a crowd sitting out in the audience like you guys, and they were talking about the differences in their religious and theological beliefs. And at one point, one of the leaders spoke up and he said, you know, all of us guys on the platform were really worshiping and serving the same God. And then he shared an illustration to make his point. He said to the crowd, I want you to picture God on top of a mountain. He said, all of us who are up on this stage, we're just on different paths working to make our way to that same God. Uh, Christianity is a path, Islam is a path, Mormonism is a path, Judaism is a path, you know, Hinduism is a path. There's all these other paths, uh, but they all lead to the same God. Well, after he got done, the Christian pastor spoke up and, and he said, hey, I respect your viewpoint, but, but here's the problem with what you just shared as it concerns Christianity. He said, Christianity teaches, yes, that God is on top of this mountain, but that no matter how hard we may try as people, we cannot carve our own path to get to him. So God, in his grace and in his mercy, decided to come down off the mountain and make his way to us. Look, there's the difference. Every other religion says to you and me, be a good person, work hard, follow all the rules, and you can make your way to God. Christianity says that's impossible. And because it's impossible, God has come to earth to make his way to us. The question we have to answer is why? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he leave heaven, wrap himself in flesh, humble himself, become our servant, and and exist alongside of us as, as a man? Why in the world would Jesus become incarnate? Well, in our passage for today, John gives us three primary reasons. If you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. These are in no particular order, by the way. They're really just in the order they show up in the passage First is this, to show us how to live. Jesus came to the earth as a man to show us how to live. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me, if you will. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, the imagery of light and darkness that John uses here in these verses is critical to understanding what he's trying to explain. Uh, Oftentimes in the Bible, darkness is used as a metaphor for sin and evil, while light is used as a metaphor for truth and righteousness. Here's what John's reminding us of. One, that we live in a world characterized by darkness. I mean, would you agree that our sin, I mean, that our world characterized by sin and evil, right? Would you agree with that? If you don't agree, just go home and watch the news later today and you'll go, ah, James was right. I should have listened. You'll agree. The second thing he's reminding us of is this, that Jesus came into this dark world to light up the darkness, to show us that life doesn't have to be lived in the way that the world oftentimes says it has to be lived. Jesus showed us that our lives don't have to be characterized by sin and evil. And I'll make it personal. Look, listen for just a moment, if you will. You know your life doesn't have to be characterized by anger, by lust, by greed, by addiction, by selfishness, worry, fear, regret, whatever whatever else you might be stuck in. Your life doesn't have to be characterized by that. Jesus came to prove to us that the God who created us wants a life so much more than the one the world offers. Jesus offers us his life. And that's the life God wants. He wants us to live a life marked by humility, grace, compassion. Marked by a deep love for him and other people. He wants us to know a life of of sacrifice, generosity, power, boldness, great faith in who he is. See, I believe this is why telling the story of Jesus' life matters. I often fear in church, like when we talk about Jesus or think about Jesus, we fast forward right to his death and resurrection. And we skip talking about his life. The life of Jesus matters. It matters because without his perfect life, there would be no perfect sacrifice at the cross. And without his perfect life, you and I would have absolutely no concept of the life God desires us to know and live each day. He came to show us how to live. The second reason Jesus came to the earth as a man is this, to buy us back to God. To buy us back to God. I want you to look at verses 9 through 13 with me. John starts, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, let me stop there for a moment, and we'll finish reading these, past, or these verses in just a minute. When I read this, every time I read this in First John, one of the things that's so hard for me to believe is this. That 2,000 years ago, the God who created the world stepped into the world, and the world missed it. Like, you would think that if a great light stepped into extreme darkness that those trapped in darkness would take notice, right? But unfortunately, that's not what happened. John even tells us that that Jesus came to his own people. This is the nation of Israel, the nation that God had chosen as a prized possession for himself, the nation that God blessed and walked with in order to put his glory on display to the world. This was the nation of people, for crying out loud, that had the Old Testament scriptures. Like they had all these promises from God that one day he'd send a savior to rescue them from from death, to rescue them from hell, to offer them new and eternal life. And when that savior that God had promised showed up, they didn't receive him. Look, I, I think that this should remind us that the, that the, 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 uh, of the power that sin has over us at times. 
Like sin has this unique way of not only blinding us to who God is, but to what God wants to do in and through our lives. That's why I'm grateful for a God who pursues. Can you imagine where we'd be if God would have left us on our own? If God wouldn't have wrapped himself in flesh and come to live among us? Like, I'm a guy that needs it to be obvious. Thank God that he made it obvious, that he showed up to the earth to give his absolute best when we were at our absolute worst. This is what John points us to in the rest of this passage. Keep reading. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the, uh, not, nor of the will of the flesh, excuse me, nor of the will of man, but of God. In these verses, John is giving us a picture of what the Bible calls redemption. Redemption means to buy back. Think about it in these terms. You go to the store, uh, you want to grab some milk, some bread, some eggs, what do you do? Uh, hopefully you don't like stuff them in a purse and walk out the door. You take them to the register and uh, you put them on the little scanner and they tell you how much it's going to cost. And what do you do? You give your money, you pay a price and that bread, milk and eggs becomes yours, right? You take it home. It belongs to you. Look, this is what Jesus did for us. He came to this earth to pay a price so that you and I could be bought back to God, the God who created us and the God who who loves us. And why in the world did Jesus need to buy us back? Well, the answer is simple. It's because you and I could never do it for ourselves. Wouldn't have mattered if we would have had all eternity to try. We could have never done it for ourselves. You see, this book teaches that, that you and I were all sinful people, meaning that we've all fallen short of being who God has created us to be. And I don't know that any of us truly want to argue it, right? Like, hey, I'm perfect, I'm blameless, I'm holy, I'm just like God, right? Never blown it, not once. Everybody in this room, doesn't matter how holy you are, you've needed second chances at times. We've all fallen short of being who God has created us to be. Again, we're sinful people. And our sin separates us from God. You see, God is the opposite of us. He's holy, he's righteous, he's perfect, he's just, he's blameless. And because our sin has created this divide or this chasm, our relationship with God has been broken. And the Bible teaches that the penalty or the punishment of our sin is ultimately death, physical death and spiritual death, separation from God, not only in this life, but in the next. Now, here's the really bad news. Ready? You and I can't do a thing about it. We can't change that on our own. Can't come to church enough, can't be moral enough, can't follow enough rules, can't be nice enough to enough people. Like You can't change your life. You can't repair your broken relationship with God, and neither can I. You and I can't save ourselves from sin, death, and hell. This is what John is pointing us to in the end of verse 13. He says, you and I don't become children of God uh, by, by, the, uh, by blood, first off, meaning that we're not magically born into God's family right away. In other words, nobody becomes a Christian by default. Nobody gets to say, well, my mom and dad were Christians, so I'm a Christian. I was born in America. We say we're a Christian nation. Must mean I'm a Christian. It's not how it works. Nor do we become children of God by will of the flesh, meaning that you and I don't wake up one day. Like, it's not some random Tuesday, and we go, you know what? I feel like I need to be a part of God's family now. I I think I should do that. That's not how it works. The Bible says when, when left to your own flesh, all you'll choose is sin, nor do we uh, come into the family of God by our own will. Like We don't intellectually decide to make that happen for ourselves. God had to do the work for us. 
And he did the work for us through Jesus Christ, the God-man who became a man to buy us back to him. You see, Jesus at the cross laid his life down so this great exchange could take place. Jesus received our sin. We received his righteousness and his perfection. Jesus got our absolute worst, and we got his absolute best. He traded that for us. Why? To buy us back. So that we could be received by God into his family. So that we could be forever loved and accepted by God as his own children. Jesus is the only one who can give us that right I love this. This is when the Bible, when it speaks of redemption, uses adoption language. Please don't miss the importance of this. You'd know that Jesus didn't come to this earth as a man to convert a bunch of people to a belief system called Christianity, right? Jesus came as a man because the God of the universe wanted his sons and daughters back. He wanted his family to be what he had originally created it to be. And if you know Christ, if you've received him, believed in his name, that's what you are. You're a loved son or daughter of God. God, your father, Jesus is your brother, and God loves you in the same way that he loves and accepts his son, Jesus. He came to buy us back to God. The third reason that Jesus came to earth as a man was this, to reveal God to the world. To reveal God to the world. Uh, I want you to read verse 14 again with me and also verse 18. Check this out. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Now, I'm going to explain this just so we don't miss it. Here's all John's telling us. No one has ever seen God the father. And so Jesus, who who was at the Father's side, who is God, wrapped himself in flesh. He came to dwell among us to give us a human picture of who God is. He came to the earth to put on display the glory of God, his essence, his attributes, his divine character and nature. Now, this truth should remind us of a couple of things. One, you and I don't get to make up our own ideas about God. Like, I know we live in a culture where people uh, seem to make up their own ideas about God as they go. Can I just tell you, the incarnation of Jesus does not give us that opportunity. Because Jesus came as the God-man, God in the flesh, you and I have been prevented from forming any of our own ideas about God. He shows us exactly who God is. The second thing it means for us is this. We don't have to make up our own ideas about God. Isn't that good news? Like, when it comes to God, it's not a guessing game. You want to know about the grace of God? Look at the grace of Jesus. That's what it looks like. You want to know about God's mercy? Look at the mercy of Jesus. Do you want to know about God's compassion? Look at the compassion of Jesus. Do you want to know how God forgives? Look at how Jesus forgives. Do you want to know how God feels about sin? Look at how Jesus feels about sin. You want to know how God feels about religion? Look at how Jesus feels about religion. You get the point. And the point is this. God came, or I'm sorry, Jesus came to the earth as God in the flesh to show us exactly what God is like, meaning that if you want to know God, you need to bury your nose in the pages of this book and know Jesus. That's where he's found, in the personhood and in the work of Christ our Savior. Now, what's all this mean for us? What are we supposed to do? Like, what does the incarnation of Jesus mean? Why does it matter? And what does his pursuit uh, look like? How should it affect your daily life and our mission as a church? Well, I want to give you three things to answer that question, okay? If you're taking notes, I want you to write them down. First, I want you to know that if you walked into the room today without a relationship with God, 
like you never have believed in Jesus, trusted in him as God, as Savior, as Lord, it has to start here for you. You have to come back to God. Jesus, again, came to the earth to buy you back, and nothing's ever going to change in your life until you come back. Now, look, I know some of us might be thinking this. Well, James, um, I'd love to. Sounds like a great idea. But there's some things going on in my life I need to get fixed before I do that. I need to clean myself up a little bit. Uh, I have some broken areas that I still need to get fixed. I have some old wounds that I, I need to repair. James, there's some stuff that I'm doing right now that I know God can't be pleased with, so I need to stop all that. Once I get my life figured out, I'll, I'll come back to God. Look, if that's what you're thinking, I have uh, good news and bad news for you. And I'll break the bad news to you first. All right, here we go. You ready? Bad news is this. You will never clean up your life enough for God. Ever. You'll never fully fix all those broken areas that exist in your life. Keep trying. You'll never fix them. You'll never restore or repair all those old wounds. You won't ever be the person that that completely stops doing all those things that displeases God. Here's the good news. Please don't miss it. Look, God doesn't ask you to. It's beautiful news, right? You don't know what God asks? He asks you to bring to him all your broken areas, all your junk, all your baggage, all your wounds, all those places that exist inside of you that still need cleaning up. He asks you to bring to him all those things that you're doing that displeases him. You see, God loves you so much that he invites you into his family just the way you are. But please hear me. He loves you too much to leave you that way. You see, when you receive Jesus and you believe in his name, you trust in who he is and what he's done for you, as I've already said, God adopts you as a loved son or daughter, and then he goes to work in your life. He starts cleaning you up. He starts repairing the old wounds. He starts restoring those broken areas. He starts killing those desires that live inside of you to do those things that displease him. It's not your job to fix your life. It's God's job. Your job is to come back to him as a loved son or daughter. That's where it has to start for you. The second thing is this. What does the incarnation mean? It means that you and I who, who know Jesus, we've got to walk as Jesus walked. We've got to walk as Jesus walked. Uh, the John that wrote the gospel that we're reading from today, he wrote four other books of the New Testament. First John, Second John, Third John, really creative titles, by the way, and then Revelation. But in First John 2.6, I want to show you what he says I love 1 John. It's one of the easiest books in the Bible to understand, in my opinion, and I'll prove it. Look, uh, whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. I I probably don't even need to explain that, but since I have a microphone, I'm going to anyway. Let me just make sense. I don't want you to miss it. Look, if you say you know Jesus, you should act like Jesus. That's what John's saying. If you say you know Jesus, you should live like Jesus, and you should walk as Jesus walked. That's all he's teaching here. Now look, what does it have to do with the incarnation? Well, the answer is really simple, and I want you to think about this with me. If Jesus really came to this earth, as John taught us in in, uh, in verses 4 through 5, if he came here as a man to show us how to live, you and I have no excuse for not walking as he walked. You with me? Jesus came to show us exactly how to live so we know how to live. But not only did he come to show us how to live, he died and rose from the dead and then gave us his Holy Spirit so that we'd have the power we need each day to live as he lived 
and walk as he walked. The question is, are we walking as he walked? Now, I want you to understand, look, walking as Jesus walked, it's not simply a matter of hard work and sheer determination. I used to think that as a young Christian. Like, I used to think that that living the life of Jesus meant doing better and working harder. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? If I'm going to live up to God's standards, man, I've got to work harder. I've got to do better. I've got to try my best. The problem was it never worked. I kept messing it up. And I'd get frustrated. I'd feel guilty. I'd feel ashamed. I'd feel like I was never going to pull off the life God wanted me to live. And, And I was this close to walking away from God in the church. And then it hit me. Wow, living the life of Christ isn't about me trying harder or doing better. Living the life of Christ is about loving Jesus so much because of what he's done for me that I allow him to take complete control of me so that he can live his life through me. That's what it's about. This is what Paul writes about in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, how in the world do we love Jesus enough to let him take complete control of our lives so that he can live his life through us? Well, it starts with you being submitted to him as Lord. Can I just tell you, Jesus doesn't just want to be your Savior. He wants to be Lord in your life. He wants to rule as King over you. You see, if that's going to happen, a few things have to happen for you each day. One, you have to wake up and remember the sacrifice of Jesus. That's where love for Jesus begins. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us, and the cross reminds us of his great love. Secondly, we have to be willing to confess day in and day out that he is God and we are not. Like, I know all of us, including this guy on the platform, we like to play God of our own lives at times, don't we? I want to tell you, be honest with you, as long as we're playing God of our own lives, we'll never live the life of Jesus. We'll never know the life that God wants us to know. The third thing we got to do daily is this. Admit that Jesus, his way of life is so much better than ours. I'm telling you, if you keep your eyes fixed on the cross and say each day over and over again, you're God, I'm not, your way of life is better than mine, you will remain humble and desperate for Jesus And it's only humble, desperate people that allow Jesus to take control of their lives so that he can have his way in and through them. The second key to allowing Jesus to live his life through you is this. You have to remain surrendered to the Holy Spirit. You see, the way that Jesus lives his life through you is through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of your body if, in fact, you know Jesus as your Savior. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you and I power each day to live the life Jesus lived. I found personally that if I'll pray a couple of prayers day in, day out, uh, that it really helps me to remain surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Here's what I pray daily, sometimes moment by moment. I'll touch on that in a second. Here's what I pray. I prayed it this morning, drive it in before I came to preach to you. Holy Spirit, fill me. Fill me with your presence. Fill me with your power. Holy Spirit, fill me up to the point that you're just flowing out of my life. And then secondly, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me. You know, I think about help in these terms. I have two little girls at home. One of them can't talk yet, so um, she doesn't fit into this illustration, but the other one talks all the time. And, uh, and one of the things that she'll say at times is, Daddy, help! Can I tell you, anytime my four-year-old says, Dad, help! As her father who loves her, I come running. Can I just tell you, when you call on God, the Holy Spirit, for help, he comes running. 
He's there to help you. He's there to, to fill you so that you can live the life of Jesus. Again, sometimes you got to pray and ask for his help moment by moment. Your kids are going to act like morons at home and you're going to want to lose your mind and you need to pray, fill me and help me. You're going to be at work and stressed out. You're going to want to lose it on somebody and you're going to have to pray, fill me and help me. There are going to be tense moments in your marriage and you're going to want to be selfish and self-centered and think about your needs before the needs of your husband or wife and you've got to pray in those moments. Holy Spirit, help me and fill me. God's going to give you opportunities with people who don't know him in the places you live, work, and play. And in those moments when you're scared to death to name Jesus. You have to pray, Holy Spirit, help me and fill me and give me courage to not only be the hands and feet of Jesus, but to tell the story of what he's done in my life. Moment by moment, here's the good news, he wants to help. If you'll stay dependent upon him and ask for help, you'll have all the help you need to live the life of Jesus day in and day out. But the last thing, last thing is this. The incarnation of Christ also means that you and I each day should pursue like Jesus pursued. That we should pursue like Jesus pursued. Uh, when I was reading this passage over and over again this past week, one of the verses stuck out to me in a way that it had never stuck out to me before. It was verse 17. John compares in that verse Moses and Jesus. And he says that through Moses came the law, right? This is the Old Testament law. This is the 613 laws that God gave his people to follow. And the agreement was this. He said to the nation of Israel, if you follow these laws, I'll be your God. I'll bless you. I'll protect you. You'll be my people. Life will be awesome. But if you don't obey me, things are going to go really badly for you. And unfortunately, what we find in the Old Testament is things going badly for the Jewish people time and time and time again. And, and let's be honest, I think it'd be that way for any of us because who in the world can follow 613 laws perfectly all the time? Not this guy, right? And so I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about the law and my mind is going to why? Like why would God burden these people if he knew that they were just going to blow it time and time again? Well, in the New Testament we find the answer. Look, in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul tells us that God gave the law so that people would recognize their sinfulness and understand their deep need for the grace of God. And as John points out, centuries later, Jesus came to this earth in the flesh to reveal the truth about God and to bring to you and I the grace we needed. Now, here's why this jumped out to me as it concerns this point. I, I fear at times that we are living in a day and age in which many Christians in this country are playing the role of Moses instead of the role of Jesus. Here's what I mean. A lot of Christians right now are running out into this world with nothing more than the laws of God and the commands of God. And please hear me, I'm not saying the laws and commands are bad things. They're beautiful things. They're great things. They point us to God. Our need for Him is a way of life. But when you use these things inappropriately, they become dangerous. When we run into the world and we play the role of Moses and we use the law and commands of God to preach nothing more than morality and behavior modification, that's a dangerous thing. We start holding people who don't even know Jesus to standards they were never meant to live up to. Church, can I just tell you, people who don't know Jesus, expect them to act like they don't know Jesus. If you're here today and, and you don't know Jesus... Look, we're going, man, we're so glad you're here. It's no surprise to us that, that you showed up and you don't act like Jesus. We're glad you're here. The building still uh, hasn't burned down. And I think that's a picture of what God wants to do in your life. 
right? Well, we can't run out and, and preach this works-based message. Get God's way of life right, and then he and we will accept you. That's a false message, man. It's a false gospel. The true gospel says this, God loves you in spite of you. His acceptance for you doesn't depend on your performance, what you do or what you don't do. It depends on Jesus and what he's done. Our job as followers of Christ is to pursue people like Jesus pursued with grace and with truth. We extend the grace of God to people no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, in hopes of sharing the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for them, that their lives might be changed both now and in eternity. Church, we pursue like Jesus pursued, and for the rest of the series, we're going to talk about the practicalities of this. Over the next four weeks, we're going to learn in a practical way how to pursue like he pursued, how to walk as he walked so that we can help people come back to God. So be here for the rest of this series, okay? It's so important, and I truly believe if you'll lean in and listen in, the next few weeks can change your life. I'm a guy who loves to read the news. Um, I read the news every day probably a few times a day. And this past week, I was on uh, my phone. I pulled up one of my news apps, and I read this story about uh, a mom of an NFL player. This guy's an NFL rookie in the league, and his mom has decided that she is not going to wear his jersey his first year. And she said, I'm not going to wear his jersey because I want him to prove himself first. I want him to prove that he can play in the league, that he can hang, and, and if he proves himself this first year, then, then next year I'll, I'll think about wearing his jersey. Now, when I read that, I had two thoughts. One was, glad she's not my mom, right? Like, geez, that's tough, man. Just be proud of your boy. He made it to the NFL. The second thing I thought about was, uh, was this, and this thought really went through my mind. Thank God he's not that kind of father. What beautiful news that our God didn't wait on us to prove ourselves before putting on our jersey, if you will. He wrapped himself in flesh and came to the earth to associate with us, to prove his great love for us, that we might be adopted back into his family as loved sons and daughters. Look, we're going to celebrate that truth together in just a moment. But before we do, um, for those of you that walked in the room that need to come back to God for the first time, that need to believe and trust in the name of Jesus, have your lives changed, finally be accepted by the God of the universe who created you and wants to know you, I want to give you the opportunity to make that decision right now, all right? So I'm just going to invite us all over the room to bow our heads, to close our eyes. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to remind you again, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. He proved this to be true through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're that person in the room today who, who just knows, man, life's got to change. I can't keep living like the old me. I'm tired of, of feeling hopeless. I'm tired of wondering if life matters. I'm tired of struggling every day. I'm tired of working hard to try and prove myself to, to God and other people. Like if that's you and you are finally ready to release control of your life to a God who loves you, 
wants you to experience a life filled with purpose, joy, and contentment, then I want to help you make a decision to say yes to Jesus today. That's where it starts, by you saying yes to Jesus, believing in his name, trusting in him as Savior and Lord. So right in your seat, I would just encourage you uh, to to pray with me in just a moment. But before we do, I, I just say this, and I say this all the time, but prayer doesn't save people. Jesus saves people. There are no magic prayers. There are no magic words. What we're getting ready to do is, is make a confession. I'm going to help you make a confession of who you believe Jesus to be and what you need him to do in your life. So right now, just say something like this to him. God, I know I'm a sinful person, and I know my sin has separated me from you. But God, I believe that you loved me enough to send Jesus God in the flesh to pursue me, to lay down his life at the cross for me so that I could be brought back to you, adopted into your family. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead so that I don't have to keep living the same life I've always lived, but so that I could be made a new person, have a fresh start, live life your way. God, I'm saying yes to Jesus right now. God, take control of my life. Have your way in me. I thank you for Jesus and for the salvation that he's given me today.